I'm Cheryl Chickie. I am Executive Director of In Our Backyard, and thank you for joining us today for an episode of Define Destiny. This is an awesome project where we're going to meet and have a conversation around sex trafficking, sex trafficking survivors, and exploitation. Today I have the amazing Desiree with us today. How are you, Desiree? I'm doing great. How are you doing, Cheryl? Good. We're Good. excited to really take on such a hard topic, but it's something that needs to be talked about because I've met some awesome, amazing survivors like you. Mm -hmm. uh, I myself am a survivor. And who else to really take on this type of conversation besides those of us who have lived experience? Um, so your story uh, truly like amazes me. Um, I really love you dearly. <laughs> and I think some of the courageous moments I've heard from you, I think when we think about human trafficking, sex trafficking, whether it's affected us, maybe someone in our family, maybe a friend or someone we know, uh, we all want to have that same question. That's how did, how did you get into that situation, whether it's mm -hmm. life or death or harm, um, but really, who's Desiree first? So when you're little Desiree, six years old, what's Desiree doing? Little Desiree at six years old? I was probably a tyrant to, to several people. <laughs> no, I think when I was six, um, I was just a regular little kid. I was just a little girl who wanted big things and thought I could dream and catch those things at some point, but my reality was not ever, it never nurtured that type of dream. It never nurtured that desire in me. So mostly I was surviving at six years old. Yeah, like six, you know, I mean, that's not super old. You should be dreaming, I think. Mm -hmm. And I think a lot of us, when we really want to be open and share about ourselves, you know, at a young age, we're already surviving. I know for Absolutely. me, I was sexually abused. Uh, you know, we can smile and have friends, but when we really want to talk, um, like, where did we start? A lot of us do have a story of sexual abuse. And mm -hmm. for me, it felt normal. I don't know how, how you felt, but for a while, I just thought that was part of, you know, my life. Um, how was it for you? My sexual abuse started actually before I left the crib. <clears throat> it was from my mom. And I think, as my memory allows me to re recall things, it stopped by the time I was five or six. I think she stopped when she thought I could remember. Um, so it's interesting when you ask me how sexual I I think I detached myself from it almost as immediately after it happened, like it didn't happen. Right. Because that was, I, I mean, that's all you know. It's your normal. You don't know to question it. And I don't even know at that age that I could have told myself that it was not right or, or it was right. I, I, I didn't have the language to even have that conversation with myself and be like, hey, this isn't okay. I do recall the last time I remember being abused though, thinking like, this just doesn't feel, 
And that one, there was that one time I remember thinking like, this does not feel right. Like my mom should not be doing this. Mm. And that's, that's the most, I think that's the last time I remember. And I guess I think I was five, maybe six years old. It's kind of a blur. Yeah, you're learning colors. <laughs> right? You know. We're supposed to learn like what's what? one through nine look like and right. how do we What's how your do favorite we count color? To 20 and 50. Yeah. Yeah. And I think having that innate form, that little seed that plants inside of us is usually shame when we start to realize mm-hmm. I'm not normal. Uh, what's one of your seeds where maybe you were confronted with this is not yeah. normal? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, I always, well, to your point, I always thought it was normal. Um, even though we never, nobody ever talked about it, right? It's a thing that happens, but then it doesn't happen because we don't talk about it, we don't acknowledge it. So I think the time I was, uh, I would live with a lot of different families. My mom was in and out of rehab. So um, I was seven years old and living with this family. And I was wetting the bed, I was having nightmares, and I remember getting up, and the lady who was taking care of me, she was, this was the best family. I loved this family. The woman who was taking care of me, she got up to tend to me, and I remember she was kneeling down and looking up at me, and she's like, Desi, what's wrong? And I was crying, and I had peed myself, and she's like, she's like, look to me, and I said, I don't even know what I said to her. I know I told her. Yeah. And I just remember the look on her face. And then, like the next day, police were pulling me out of class. <laughs> and I was sitting there in the principal's office, scared to death. And I remember sitting on my hands like this. And I was like, they're going to take me from my mom. Mm. Like if I tell. And I became very defiant in that moment. But I recall like, oh my gosh, I just broke some sacred code of secrecy and this isn't normal. And then it was like this, the revelation of, oh my gosh, this isn't happening to everybody. (laughs) Yeah, and being taken away is, I think, Mm. one of the most silencing factors for anyone who's gone through abuse with a family member. I know I felt exactly the same. I knew my family would be split apart. I would be sent somewhere else. Mm-hmm. I thought I would be sent um, maybe even to prison. <laughs> I thought right. I would be in trouble, you know, if I told. And just those, you can see a five-year-old trying yeah. to weigh out this burden of trying to solve mm-hmm. a life that you have no control of. Yeah. And knowing that little seed, right, of shame is like, this is what happens when you tell, like, is it fixing the problem? Mm. For you, it's probably heartbreaking, really, um, at that age to know there's, I'm sorry, police yeah. coming into your school. <laughs> um, not normal. Like, nothing's becoming more normal as you navigate, yes. right, what to do. Exactly. Um, so relationships, I think, are a huge factor and how we can find a way to navigate, to tell. Um, you had that amazing family. Um, tell me a little bit, a bit about more relationships that maybe shaped you um, at this time and, and as you kind of grow in um, to maybe more areas where you feel like, okay, I am that at-risk kid. 
That didn't click forever. <laughs> I, was, <laughs> I did not click until well into my adolescence. Um, just growing up, I, I, like I said, I lived with several different families. Like two, I'd get two to three a year. Um, sometimes I'd go to, I'd go back to families who I'd stayed with previously. And I don't know that they shaped me other than learning how to blend in and become whoever I needed to become, right? So I guess that actually, the, it does shape you. You learn how to fit in and... Disappear. Disappear, yeah, not be seen. Be seen just enough to get your food, be seen just enough to make sure you're taken care of, but you don't want to live out loud. Yeah. And, and I remember as a little girl though, I was that little girl who wanted to be on stages and perform and dance. I loved dancing. I wanted, I would sing, I would make all kinds of noise <laughs> coming out of my mouth. And I just wanted to be like, see me and love me and let me make you happy. And so hiding that so I'd be accepted yeah. and not being a burden on anybody really became my norm um, for so many years. And then there was, I had other people though, like I had a surrogate grandmother who was a neighbor and she would take me in um, when, my, when things would get crazy. And I loved her. She made me feel safe. And I didn't even know how she protected me until I was a mother and went back to visit her. And she was like, do you remember, you know, when this happened and when that happened, I was like, not at all. Hmm. And so it was interesting hearing her stories and recollection of my mom and some of the drunken stupors and where she would, she would literally rescue me. And I was like, wow, I don't I have, I have no recollection of those things. Yeah. So we have alcoholism, right? Definitely. Not a safe relationship really for no. you and your mom. There's boundaries being crossed for you as a child. Mm -hmm. um, what does it look like when you are ready to venture out? Uh, into the world as Desiree on your own. Wow. Venture out when I was ready. I don't know that I was ready. I was forced. <laughs> um, at 17, I graduated high school, barely. Like I didn't know I was going to graduate until I walked across the stage and actually saw a diploma. Um, I felt like that was a big win. And after, after my graduation, I was looking for my mom and my stepdad and they, they, couldn't, they couldn't be found. So I don't think they ever came. Um, but shortly after the graduation ceremony, there's a senior party. So I went to that and you know, you say goodbye, your goodbyes and you like send off big. And I took the bus home the next morning and I was kind of excited to see like, hey mom, did you see me? And um, it, I walk in the door and she and my stepdad are sitting there with this really tiny little living room. And they're sitting there, just these Cheshire cat grins on their face. Oh yeah, I know that grin. Yeah, and I was like, hey, like, did you come last night? And they didn't even really respond to me on that. And my feelings were hurt. Like, don't get me wrong, my feelings were hurt. So I really wanted, I needed to hear that they had came and they had seen me. And my mom's like, oh, Desi, 
we got you something. And I'm thinking, okay, cool. Like, what did you get? And she's like, over here, there's a suitcase for you. And so I had to figure out very quickly, like, where do I go? How? So my launch into adulting, I was not ready. I just, I just did it. Um, so then, you know, from there, I thought, you have to survive. Yeah. I was like, I ended up nannying for a friend of mine's single dad that went sideways very quickly. Um, and then after that, I was homeless. And um, yeah, it was, I don't know, interesting, like looking back. Uh, I had met some, some gang, I started hanging out with gang members. My boyfriend was a gang member. Um, so you kind of got caught up in that circle. And I, st I stayed in a house for a while that was constant chaos. And what I learned at a younger age as far as how to exist in a place, but do it quietly, I learned, I learned how to master that in that house because that was like a whole different level of survival. So it was in, you know, like it's interesting looking back how we, our, our authentic selves, the person we were really supposed to be, slowly erodes over time as we are just trying to get through a day. And you have to disconnect from whoever she really is in order to make it, you know what I mean? Yeah, those are circumstances where you can't, you can't just have a, a three-month plan. Not at all. You know, like, <laughs> like you don't sit minutes? there and call someone. Yeah, you know, yeah. you're, you're every day figuring it out. Um, yeah. How does that go? Well, <laughs> not so phenomenal. <laughs> um, actually, that went south really quickly as well. Like I said, it was a lot of violence, um, constant like in your mind, you're constantly thinking like, okay, this is my escape. This is how I'm gonna get out of this one. This is how I'm not gonna get hit this way. You know, like you, you're, you're strategically planning your safety in the moment. Um, with that, what ended up happening is I befriended a girl who was also there. And interestingly enough, like we became friends. It was completely forged in the dirt, literally. Yeah. Like another gal had said to her, I want you to kick her ass because she felt threatened by me because somebody's brother thought I was cute. So I literally got like jumped. I had no clue. It was the first time I'd even been to this house. And, and she told me later on, she was like, I did that because she was going to beat me down. <laughs> She's like, she was going to beat me if I did not do that to you. And I was like, okay, well, like, it's all on water under the bridge, you know? And you really have to forge those types of friendships, even though the foundation is so shaky, right? It's a different rules. But it's a whole different rule. <laughs> and so um, a lot, just like I said, there was a lot of things happening. We ended up leaving, she ended up leaving in an ambulance. Um, and then I rode with her and we never went back. We ended up in a shelter after that and befriended a woman in a shelter who left to go live in a motel. 
And then we left the shelter to go stay in the stability of a motel with roaches the size of like my thumb. I swear it was my roommates were the most disgusting little creatures. It was terrible. Like they were in the they were in the couch where I slept. They had sandwich bags over my toothbrush so they didn't get it. It was it was it was disgusting. Um, but the uh, and then from there she she had met a boyfriend and found stability and I was on my own again so I just I would stay wherever I could stay so and this is where it kind of rolls into my first I think level of exploitation and I didn't even realize that that's what that was isn't that true yeah like sometimes when we're in the worst moment like yes I can identify that yeah. But looking back, it's yeah. like there's these little moments of, you know, introduction to these at-risk situations. Right. And sometimes it's immediate, but sometimes it builds. Mm -hmm. uh, I would say specifically for someone, you know, more like us, uh, those of us who are sexually abused, we're just um, going to find a way to allow those factors that you talked about, learning to disappear, mm. um, never really having that moment to be seen, but yet trying to survive at the same time. There's so, there's always two things happening yes, at the exact exactly. same time. And I think it's always looking back in our own stories, like how is it both? How is it, you know, I'm trying to be seen, but I'm also disappearing. Right? How is it I'm being <laughs> yeah. abused, but I'm also surviving and making it on my own. Mm -hmm. um, so that story of exploitation is so true when there's survival and you know you have to just find some type of way so where does your story of exploitation kind of start um once i got off the street uh you know i i, I did that for a while just stayed wherever um with exchanging whatever needed to be exchanged right um I met, I ran into a woman who was an old neighbor and she said I could move into her basement, stay with her family. I worked square jobs at that point. Now explain square. Okay, square. I worked regular jobs. I, I like <laughs> regular, regular jobs, just like nine to five retail type jobs. I did that, but um, I had, I had become friends with this group of guys. And throughout this whole mix, I had befriended these guys who I loved like brothers. I really, and I'm, I'm a loyalist, like I'm a hardcore, like if I think you have my back, I will ride and die for you until I die so many times to myself that like there's nothing left, unfortunately. Or that's who I used to be. <laughs> Not so much anymore, but, um, so I made these guys, we, we were like best of friends, and they, one of them, he was kind of like the leader of the pack. He was like, oh, Des, you should dance. You should dance. You should do this. You should do that. And I'm like, yeah, no, <laughs> that's not for me. And oh, you should totally do it. He's like, and hit two of his baby's moms were dancers and in the life. And I'm like, yeah, no, I'm good until you've you wear people down, right? It's a process and it's built off. It's, it's, you have that relationship and there's that trust. So 
I worked at the mall in a jewelry store and a sandwich shop, and then I started dancing. Um, and the concept, the whole, the whole premise was, we're gonna do something big together. We're gonna do, like, we're gonna use this money and we're gonna do something big. And my little 19-year-old brain was like, yeah. Yeah, sounds like, empowering. Yeah, empowering, oh my gosh, I actually have a sense of family. This is that, that was not what this was. And <laughs> so I learned very quickly um, that their motive was different. And, and there weren't other options either. Well, not in the story they were telling me making money in a sandwich shop and working at a little retail store in a little, you know, jewelry store in the mall is not cutting it. And so um, some, some things happened, some stories transpired, and my roommate who I lived with um, was not a good friend. So she decided to get, she got me fired from my job um, she worked there also. She had relieved me real quickly. Like she had relieved me one shift to use the restroom. She came in, she wasn't working. My tail came up short that night and I couldn't account for it. And I didn't even think she had, would do that. So she had told the manager, well, don't you see all of her new clothes? Don't you see this? I'm sorry, $75 missing is not going to buy me a new wardrobe. However, it was convincingly, convincing enough to the people that worked there to fire me. So I became dependent then on um, my dancing. And she had said something to my friends. They bought into some lie. And anyway, they ended up stealing everything I had. Like I had nothing. And they took, they took everything. They took my underwear, they took my bras, they took my socks, they took my shoes, they took every little piece of clothing I had. Um, and I was like, okay, there's that loyalty not a thing. Um, so I started over again, moved back in with the gal who I'd previously been with. This time I'm only dancing, but I don't, you know, I'm lying. I say a waitress. And I, I meet a boyfriend. And then he also had dreams. You know, it's always on the back of, <laughs> of the broken that we want to build our dreams, right? Yeah. So, um, he made me laugh, and that is really the only draw I had to him, is he, he was funny, and he could sing. And so, long story very short, became very abusive. He kept me in the clubs. I ended up working in dope houses with him every night after work, and all my money went back into the dope, flipping it and cooking it up and, until, until it stopped and he left me. <laughs> and do you feel it, like... You were aware, you like, were you in it together at that time I of the stage? I thought so. I thought so. I really thought I loved him. Um, like, he was extremely abusive. Yeah. Um, but he was not a loyal man. And um, he ended up getting somebody pregnant. And so he had this strong sense of conviction to do the right thing. <laughs> and what ended up, like, it felt like it shattered me in the moment. It actually saved my life because I'm pretty sure he would have been the death of me. He'd never leave. Right. Yeah. And the abuse was so bad. So, um, yeah, 
it was a blessing that he left. Uh, but yeah, that was my first, those are my first, like, that was my introduction into, like, really being exploited was, was with that boyfriend. Yeah. And I don't know about you and how you feel, but with my sexual abuse and then, you know, going into these relationships where there's exploitation, mm -hmm. I remember I, I didn't uh, see myself as being in the sex industry, but once I realized what he wanted me to do, I knew I could do it. Mm -hmm. because of my sexual abuse like I yeah. knew what would be expected of me and I've been there before and since it was a family member I kind of had this impression of like well that's the worst case scenario yeah. so like this I I can do this I don't want to but you know I I do know some of the ropes unfortunately and I know other people don't and you know maybe it can't be as bad as it started and then you find out it can get so much worse right? right but for some reason when you're surrounded in relationships that are built on shame it's really hard to identify like where someone's kind of stealing you right yeah. like you said he's he's on a different path um, it's not about your dreams right it's not about Desiree's destiny at all Never. it's it's another person <laughs> mm -hmm. kind of taking that control away from you um, and us not knowing how to maneuver that um, and to a point you know it's like oh you're happy he left but I know for you you also met others that you know are you have some really life and death situations that mm -hmm. you know it starts out as levels of exploitation in your story but where does it get like out of bounds for you with, with a trafficker um, where it went way beyond what you could feel like you could dig yourself out of? I had gone to Hawaii to escape my life in Portland. Um, everything in Portland was falling apart. I, everything. I, I had no reason to stay there and I just wanted to get away from all the noise. And so... I had met my pimp when I was actually waitressing in a club and established this relationship with him thinking that, oh, this is like, I'm not a rookie. I see you. You're telling me about what you're doing. Like there was no, and I thought, oh, okay, like I'm above this. Don't ever think you're above something. <laughs> right. And if you can keep your dreams and your goals, Right? Yeah. And get it done. Well, in that point, I was never thought I would hoe. I mean, I was like, there's no, like, I'll dance. I'll slang dope. I'll even turn a girl out. But I'm not hoeing. Right. And I really, my pride got the best of me. Boy, did it. It brought me down to reality real quick. It, um, so I meet, I meet my guy, or this guy, and we, it was on a Sunday evening, very slow. I remember all of the details. It's so funny. And we talked, and he's edu he was educated, and like he stimulated me intellectually. And I was like, oh, he's kind of different. And I knew he was a pimp. I mean, I worked at, I was waitressing at a strip club. I knew tons of pimps. And he said, yeah, I'm here. I, gotta find, I need to find a girl. And I was like, oh, yeah, I'm sure you'll find one. <laughs> There's a whole lot in here. 
but his focus was on me and I'm thinking I'm different. And so we ended up going to Seattle the next, I think it was the next weekend we went up to Seattle and he took me through all the massage parlors, all the massage parlors. He showed me the different clubs and it was funny. I didn't realize I was so naive and I thought I had so much game <laughs> and he was, it was grooming me. Yes, absolutely. And, and, I was, and then he flew me back to Portland and then he went back to Hawaii. I'm like, that's great. I had fun. Well, then he'd call me, he'd call me every, he'd call me check-in at work. He'd call me every night. We'd talk for hours. So it was this slow breakdown of any guard I had up. It was completely down. After my trip back to Portland, I went and decided to move to Hawaii probably about a month after that. Um, so that was my breakdown of boundaries probably took place after my pimp came back here to the mainland to bring to get more girls and came back with minors or 15 to 17 so that for me was a breaking point I really felt like you can sign up for this yeah like these little girls what are you doing you're nasty like you're nasty why are you why are you having sex with kids yeah. and why do you think it's okay to sell them but i learned very quickly that you know this is a job and i have to detach myself from any emotional anything you can't afford to feel so um, his bottom was, um, you know, she, she turned me out, she showed me, and then I showed the girls. And um, so I, but that was a real breaking point for me because I had to disconnect from who I am on such a high level. Like, it just was like, whoever I thought I was, I'm not her at all anymore. I am literally like scum. Yeah, any situation. <laughs> You f like we find ourselves, we still have values. Yeah, you really right? do. You really do. In spite of what it all might look like externally, there's still some moral compass that resides in each of us that, that stings us from time to time. Yeah. Yeah. And you said loyalty, but I'm trying to think of how to describe when you see how young these girls are. You know, it's, yeah. I don't think you had any loyalty inside of you left for this like idea of a way to get out? I think my idea of a way to get out was very temporary. Yes. I mean, it was, it was not, I wasn't in love. I told myself I loved him because it sounded good. It made me feel better about whatever I was doing, I, but I didn't love him. Um, I needed to get out of Portland. I had no other way to get out of Portland. And he was like my ticket. It came with a great cost, but it was the way I could get out. Um, so I think with that, like, yeah, like I, I didn't buy into a dream. I just, I remember him saying, we can't live off love and coconuts. We I guess. can't live off of love and coconuts. <laughs> right? And I'm like, you know, 
I can eat plant-based. I'm not sure. <laughs> right. But no, I think, uh, yeah, it just, those girls, Yeah. that really bothered me. When does it cost too much? I think it costs too much from the beginning, to be honest with you. I think that, um, you know, you, you, for some of us, we think back and we're like, we have those literally, like you said, life and death experiences where we're like, crap, like I should not be here times 10, right? Um, I know this one experience I had, I, when I, I want to backtrack just a second, just to give context to what I'm about oh, yeah. to share. Bring me there. Um, <laughs> when I was 19 and 20 and I was dancing for my ex-boyfriend, when he left, it broke me. Like I knew it saved my life. It devastated me, but my whole identity was in this man. He had broken my spirit to such a degree that he mastered me. I wouldn't wear makeup. I wouldn't look at people in the face unless I was working. Like he had broke me. I remember after he left and I was in, I was in my living room and I fell to my knees and I was like, God, I know you're real. Like I cried out, cried out. And I'm like, I know you're real. I went to a Catholic school for eight years. Like I didn't know you there because y'all don't think you really hung out up in there but I know of you, I know you're real. And if you're real, I need you to show yourself to me because like, I want to die right now. And things, he, I believe he's real. He orchestrated things. He orchestrated relationships where I met new people. And it was just like one after the other, after the other, like he showed himself to be so real. And so in that season of falling in love with Jesus, I learned his voice. So when, said those who know him, right? <laughs> know his voice. <laughs> and I became very well acquainted in the relationship with, with God, in my relationship with him. Um, at 21 is when I lost my marbles. <laughs> I had no, I mean, I really didn't have, I had a couple friends, um, but I, was meeting new people as well. I'm like, you can drink, you can do this. It's all about what they say. It's all about moderation. But with a personality like me, I don't moderate Jack. I'm a hardcore ride or die one way or the other. If I'm gonna serve yeah. you, I'm gonna serve you with my whole heart, my whole mind and my whole soul. If I'm gonna serve something else, I'm gonna do it the same way. I can't half step anything. And I've I was actually thinking about this on the drive out here. <laughs> so I was like, I'm not a half stepper. I'm like, all, I'm all in one way or the other. And so slowly my relationship with God got forsaken and I was all in back in the life again. And that's how I ended up waitressing again um, at the club where I met my pimp. So that was to give context to where I'm going with this next thing. I remember this one date I thought I was catching. And um, he said he was military, there's a lot of military in Hawaii. And he was like, oh, I need to go up to this parking garage and get my wallet out of, out of my car. And I was like, oh, okay. 
And it was funny because it was in the trick room, the hotel, the same place. And I thought, oh, I don't know. But so I was starting to hear, I was starting to hear a little voice, right? And like, we can call it our gut, we can call it whatever, but it was like a combination. And we get in the elevator and he says, okay, it's here. He's like, it's on this level. He's like, why don't you come with me and then we'll go, we'll go up to your room. And even as I'm telling this, I can feel the inside of my body start to quiver because I remember it so vividly. And I heard that voice say, if you go out there with him, this is what you're going to look like when he's done. And that voice had saved me before from being, from being murdered. And I knew it. So God shows you a picture of you, right? Yeah. Okay. What's it, what's it look like? I'm laying there, like, hunched over. I see blood gushing out of my head. And I'm just laying there, and he's, he left me to die. And I'm like, wait a minute. So, it, so I was like, oh, crap. Like, I can't go. I'm not getting your wallet with you. I don't even think you have a wallet. Um, it's so, a setup. Yeah, it's a yeah. setup. And so I was like, you know... I'm going to hold the elevator door for you because these elevators can be slow. I said, why don't you go, you go here and I'm going to wait. As soon as he stepped out of that door, I was like, let me close that as quickly as I can. And then I, then I had a moment of second guessing myself. So I kind of stayed around the hotel to see if he was going to come back out because if he was legitimate, if he was really going to looking for, you know, a date, He'd be like, hey, where'd she go? And he did not come back. And I was like, ooh, I'm so glad I listened to that one. <laughs> so like, there was moments, there were moments like that that are profound. And I think, okay, like this is, God's grace is still with me in spite of my ridiculous, broken choices that I think our choice is, right? Yeah, like, circumstances. Like, circumstances, like. right. And so I was like, okay, that's cool. And then, you know, you just go back to work. It is what it is. But, but yeah, there's, there's just certain moments where you're like, that stand out. How did it feel to be feeling like you were seen by God? Mm -hmm. I don't think I gave myself time to, because I'm, I'm still working. Right? Yeah. You don't have a lot of, I was grateful. I mean, but I didn't, I didn't ruminate in it and be like, oh Lord, like you're so good. It was more like, Phew, thank you. <laughs> and then right. I'm on to the next. <laughs> Escaped death possibly, yeah, yeah. you know? Yeah. So where are you in shame, you know, when you're in that moment? Is, does it feel, you know, because remember, I'm going to think back to, officers coming into your classroom after you were finally seen yeah. by the gal um, who was housing you, right? Yeah. So it turned to shame. But when you felt God seeing you and, you know, tipping you off in a sense, that little voice to trust your gut, mm -hmm. you know, was that the same feeling where, oh, I've been seen and things get worse? Or, but this time it was, it seems like it was different. None at all. I really don't think, when I was in that place in my life, shame wasn't a factor. And I say that um, because I probably just compartmentalized it all the time. I, 
I would feel a sense of shame when during the day or when I was trying to be normal, just kind of creep up on me. I remember I was on the track one night and I see the manager and the bartender who are on vacation on the track, but they're not on the track, they're on the marketplace strip, right? Like on the main, they're on, on Kalakaua. And they're like, Desi, and I'm like, she's like oh no like don't say my name yeah right and I and I was like god they I know they know what I'm doing out here but I couldn't say it and they weren't gonna say it but I remember like I wanted to just be normal yeah. right like I wanted to be out there shopping like you are and I'm not I'm shopping for something different yeah. and so there were moments of shame but when God spoke to me I never I have never felt shame in my encounters with God. I, he, his love for me that, that saturates me in those moments, like literally obliterates the shame. Yeah. He sees Desiree. Yeah. He sees me, the one he created. He doesn't see me who the world formed into this person or that person to satisfy this need or that need. He sees his creation and so for me that's always been huge in my coming back into the relationship with him and what else changed for you to kind of turn that that corner away from you know being in the sex industry or like what how did you really have that exit um you mean like from my exit from my pimp or in general like when did you finally um, Stand on your two feet and not have to be mm-hmm. wearing a mask. Well, that was a process. I ended up running away from my pimp twice. Second time I stayed out um, didn't, and I didn't return to him. And then it, but I stayed in the industry as a dancer for three years afterwards. And I thought I was living kind of a best life sort of scenario. You know, I met my... I met my boy, I met a man who ended up becoming my husband, you know, he was, uh, and, you know, we were like these little Bonnie and Clydes. I thought, like, oh, we both got this hustle, we got this. It's always together. It's always together. Always But we together. were together. It wasn't, it was different in the sense that let's, let's build on a broken back. Like, we were both broken. Yeah. Let's build together. You know what I mean? Right. We built on a faulty foundation, however, yeah. we built together. And, uh... But I remember, I remember as I was entering, or as right before I exited the industry, I was sitting, it was again a Sunday night, slow. I was sitting at the bar, drinking coffee, smoking a cigarette, and I was like, I heard God say, are you done yet? And I was like, hmm, hmm, yeah, I want to be done. And I feel like I'm probably, I probably sound like a crazy one, but I was like, as soon as I stack some money, I'm out. And I remember going back to the dressing room and telling, telling some girls, I'm like, yo, I'm out. Like, I'm, I'm going to stack and I'm out. And, I, and in the interim, I had began working square jobs. I was a barista um, at this little state coffee stand. And then I had um, gotten a job at a bank as a teller part-time. And then I was moonlighting. So I was, I was gradually working my way out 
um, not to where I could afford to be out, but I just wanted to build my resume. Yeah. And so it was when I was working at the bank and I, and I heard him ask me that and I couldn't break for anything. I couldn't even break a bill. I used to make pretty decent money and I couldn't, any money I made that night onward went, you know, you got to pay out the bartenders, you got to pay out the bouncers, you got to pay out your driver, you got to pay out the DJ and you go home with like 40, 40 bucks, 50 bucks, maybe you can't, you couldn't, I couldn't live off that. My lifestyle did not allow me to live off that. So, so you're, so you're ready to be done, but you're trying to lean on your own right. savings, let's exactly. say, right? Exactly. To make sure you're ready on your terms. Sounds exactly. like, how's that work out? It doesn't. <laughs> so it's funny because I, I remember in the course of building my resume, there was, um, I worked for a staffing agency as their office, kind of their office manager. And I fell in love with the people and they were like financially like ruined. And so I would do it for free. I'd clock in at nine o'clock every morning and work until five and then go to the club. And I did this because I was like, this is a great experience. It's good on my resume. And I just basically donated my time. And so in that, um, they were Christians and there's a husband and wife. And I ran into them in the grocery store and I was like, so when are y'all going to invite me to church? And it's like, I'm thinking I'm so clever. And like, when you ask, <laughs> I was like, oh, there we go. <laughs> I was like, so I asked. And so I went with them that weekend. And then the following weekend, I went back and to church and I was just like, you know, I heard this story in the Bible about this dude named Peter getting out of a boat and trying to walk on water because he saw Jesus. I'm going to try that. And guess what? I can walk on water sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> sometimes. So I quit. I never went back. I, and I have worked my way up into the position I am now. Um, and I'm going to... I work in, you know, I'm an IT change control analyst and a life coach, and like I've really worked my way up. So um, God's been gracious to me, and that's just been part of the that's just part of the process. And so much grace, it sounds like, in your healing part yeah. of your journey, um, really define destiny, right? Yeah. I mean, if we think about the de the destiny that was kind of in front of you, right, for how, how many years would you say? I mean, really it was in the life seven years, but like preceding my conscious activity in the life, you're still being exploited on some level, you're still, yeah. or you're being used on some right. level, right? So I would say my whole life up until I was 25. Is there anything missing that you stand on for healing that I don't know about? Missing? No, girl. <laughs> <laughs> it's, all, it's all my relationship with God. It's literally. Um, COVID shut me down and taught me how to be still and stop running from myself. And I learned how gritty God can get with you if you give him opportunity. Yeah. And I'll tell you, 
I wouldn't change it for anything. And healing is so much more difficult than surviving. Truth. Right? Because <laughs> when you're surviving, you're just going through the motions. But when you're healing, you're being intentional. And you stand and you face it. And you walk back through. But you realize you're not walking alone. And I think that's the key piece for me is like I was never alone. In spite of how abandoned I felt or rejected I felt, like he was always there with me. And I think in that healing process too, I've really just learned like being accountable. Not, not hiding in shame, not blaming other people. I believe that, you know, a lot of people were responsible for the pain that was in my life, but I'm responsible for the healing and I need to do better by the people who love me today and not bleed all over people who didn't cut me, right? So I think that it's being accountable and taking time to get to know who you are. And then sometimes you got to rediscover and rebuild and create new foundation, like get back to the foundational pieces. And you have to fill in the cracks where the foundation was faulty. Yeah. And then God can rebuild you. That's great. Yeah. Well, I'm glad you're here. Thank you. Me too. I'm glad you had me. <laughs> I'm glad you're healing. I'm yes. still healing. We're always healing. Right. Um, it is hard work. So thank you for doing the hard work and sharing uh, the hard pieces and also some of the the joyous pieces because we're just humans trying to trying to build ourselves really. Right. So um, I enjoy just hearing the journey with you and I love you to pieces. So thank Same, you. Same, sis. I love you too. Thank you. Thank you.